you've got a Bible, you can open up to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 19 and we'll read down through verse 34. It's a pretty lengthy text. And rest assured, we're not going to be able to address everything in it. Um, but the, that's where our message is going to come from this morning in Matthew chapter 6. We've been in a series entitled Fan or Follower now for the last several weeks in which we've been looking at some of the distinguishing features of what it means to follow Jesus and not just be a fan of Jesus who stays on the periphery, on the outskirts, and wants to see um, the, 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 the great things that Jesus does, but somebody who's willing to lay their lives down, as Jesus says in Luke's Gospel in chapter 14 when he says, if you want to come after me, it means you're going to have to crucify your flesh. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to, the beginning of the Christian life is indeed death. It's death to all earthly attachments and all earthly allegiances so that you would follow after Jesus with everything that you have. So we've been looking at over the course of the last several weeks at different features in the gospels, those hard sayings that Jesus lays down for those who would be his followers and not just his fans. We saw how those who would follow after Jesus, that the markers of greatness and glory in their lives are, is not power and privilege. It's not rising the ranks to, in order to have people underneath you, but it's coming under others to serve them as opposed to getting people underneath you who can serve you. It's not the markers of privilege where you have people attending to your needs, but wherever you come underneath others to attend to theirs. So it's not power and privilege, but it's service and sacrifice and suffering. Those are the markers of greatness. We also saw last week how one of the markers of those who are following after Jesus is that they're able to hold together holiness and humility. So there's this willingness to lay aside everything that would entice them to sin or entangle their affections. And they lay those things aside. They cut them off as Jesus' language. He says you cut off your hand if it leads you to sin. You cut, out, cut off your foot if it leads you to sin. You pluck out your eye. So there's a repentance that you engage in as you're pursuing holiness, but you also don't pursue holiness in a way that makes you all high and mighty above everyone else because you're like a little child who is living in absolute dependence upon God for everything in your life. And so there's a humility that's birthed, or this holiness that's birthed out of humility. So we've been looking at these features, and this morning we come to Matthew chapter 6 to take a look at a particular text there in Matthew's gospel where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount lays out the distinctives of discipleship in, in, the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the, what life looks like as a citizen of God's kingdom, what it looks like to live under Jesus' sovereign and saving rule. That's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is about. And we start in Matthew chapter 5 by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those, happy are those, uh, received by God are those who not come to God with their merits and say, God, here's all the things that I've done. They don't live a bottom-up spirituality where they take all the things that they've done and they offer them up in their hands to God and say, God, now you must accept me. Here are my merits. Here are the things that I've done. But those who actually get into the kingdom, those who live under Jesus' sovereign and saving rule, are not those who live bottom up but top down. We saw this a little bit last week where everything comes down from God. So we're not those who depend upon their merits but throw themselves upon God's mercy. Those who are the ones who get in. And then out of that, Jesus lays out what the distinctives look like, what a life looks like that's been thrown upon the mercy of God. That's not dependent upon their merits, holding them up, saying, God, you must now accept me, but throwing yourself upon Jesus' mercy and what that does in a life and how it changes and transforms and revolutionizes everything about us, including what Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 6, the way that we view money and possessions. So that's where we're at this morning in Matthew chapter 6. The text that we're going to read together begins in verse 19 and down through verse 34. You can follow along with us if you've got a copy of the scriptures. If not, it'll be on the screen for you. 
Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, Jesus says. Now, some of you are here this morning. It's your very first time with us, man, right out of the gate. And you're like, man, I showed up the Sunday. They're talking about money, right? In fact, every time I go to church, this is probably what some of you are thinking. Every time I show up at church, they're talking about money. They want to pass plates. They want to collect an offering. They want us to give to something, right? So some of you are probably thinking, man, I showed up the one Sunday. They're going to talk about money. And some of you have been with us for a while. You're going, well, didn't we just talk about money like Two months ago, at the end of May, when we were studying through the book of James, and you would be right. You would be accurate, right? We did. We looked at James chapter 5 and saw how every Christian, every Christian, everyone who professes faith in Jesus, there should be an ever-widening gap between the, the threshold at which they could live and the threshold at which they do live. Not hoarding for ourselves and living in luxury and self-indulgence, but freeing up resources to give away and moving it out from us as opposed to keeping it for us. So we talked about money two months ago. In reality, if we talked about money as much as Jesus talked about money and possessions, we would talk about it every eight weeks. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says this. He, he, did, he did the math, okay? So he added up, and he created percentages, and he said 15% of everything that Jesus taught or said had something to do with money and material possessions. 15%. So I did the math, and that's every eight weeks. If you're going to come to church every weekend, it's every eight weeks. If we talked about it, 15% of the weeks of the year, every eight weeks, we would be landing on something about money and possessions if we talked about it as much as Jesus did. In fact, I'm convinced that the American church doesn't talk about money and possessions enough. Doesn't talk about it enough. And what I mean by that, let me be real clear. I don't mean that the American church doesn't ask for money enough. Okay? That's not what I mean. I mean the American church doesn't think about money enough to think about it thoroughly, biblically, of how 
followers of Jesus should handle money, how followers of Jesus should handle material possessions. We shy away from it, and here's one of the reasons we shy away from it is because it makes us uncomfortable to talk about money, doesn't it? We all kind of, st- we all kind of sat a little upright whenever I started reading Matthew chapter 6. We kind of squirmed a little bit in our seat. Why? Because we get uncomfortable anytime we be- somebody begins to press upon money. Pastors get uncomfortable to talk about money. Right, because they don't want to scare away anybody who might be considering make, uh, plugging themselves into the life of the local congregation. And so we shy away from money. And so the American church, because we have a tendency to shy away from talking about what Jesus talked about, 15% of his earthly ministry, we have a tendency not to think very biblically about money and possessions in light of following Jesus. So I want to make, that's one thing I want to make clear. The second thing I want to make clear is this, is this is not to give more money so I can get a raise message, okay? I just want to be very clear this morning that I am not in control of my salary. You, the church pays me well for the size of a congregation that we have right now, enough to put food on my table and a roof over my head and provide for my family's needs. So this is not the, you need to give more so I can make more message. In fact, I don't have any say in what my salary is set at. That's between our elders and our finance team, a conversation that they have. And to be quite honest, I don't care to even be a part of those discussions. I have no desire to be a part of those discussions. And so this, this also isn't the message that's going to say, well, God wants you to be wealthy, right? He wants you to have lots of stuff. He wants you to have big barns that you can store, all that stuff that you have in. It's not that message either. This is the message, though, that is aimed at your happiness, at your everlasting joy, and at your temporal fulfillment. Robert Murray McShane was an old Scottish preacher, and he was preaching to his congregation one time about giving to those who were in need, giving to the poor, giving to those who perhaps we might feel like do not deserve any kind of charity that we might offer to them. And this is what he said to them at the end of that sermon. He said, oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. McShane says, listen, I want your happiness. I want your everlasting joy. I want your fulfillment. I want you to be satisfied. And he said, the way that you're going to find everlasting joy, the way that you're going to be fulfilled, the way that you're going to be satisfied is if you're not trying to accumulate more for yourself, but you're a conduit of blessing in the lives of others. So that what God blesses you with is flowing through you to the lives of other people who are around you. He said, I want your happiness, not your money. Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. There's a blessing that comes in. There's a transformative effect of generosity in our lives that comes when our hearts get set free from the love of money. And that's what I want this morning. That's what I want for myself as I look in the mirror of God's word and I see what is written on its pages and off the mouth and out of the lips of Jesus. And that's what I want for you as well. I don't want your money. I want your happiness. And I want God to have your heart. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say about money in Matthew chapter 6. The first thing that he says that we're going to take a look at this morning is this. 
first thing that Jesus says is that you have a relationship with money, wealth, and material possessions, and either you will use money, wealth, and material possessions to serve God, or you will use God to get money, wealth, and material possessions, right? One or the other. You have one master and one master only. We will either use money and serve God, or we will use or serve money and use God, is what Jesus says. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, no one can have two masters. No one can have two masters. Now, when we read that text, typically we think of, well, I have two jobs, and I've got two bosses, and I carry out their will in both of those fields of, of work. And so, yes, I can have two masters, because i got two jobs, and I go to this job from 9 to 5, and I go to this job, right? When I get off from the other job, I go to this job, and I do the work of that master, and I come home, and I go to bed. I wake up the next morning, and I do it all over again. But whenever you think about what Jesus says here when he says, no one can have two masters, He's not talking about no one can have two bosses. He's talking about no one can have two centers of life that they build everything around. That they give themselves over to. That they yield in obedience for. Jesus says no one can have two masters who are dictating decisions and choices. Who are the center of our lives. Think about the way that the Bible refers to the relationship between Jesus and his church, between God and his people. Oftentimes in the Old Testament and the New, it uses the analogy of a husband and a wife, of spouses, and they relate to one another. And so a husband to love and serve and sacrifice for his wife and a wife to respond with a nurturing reception of his leadership and to affirm that and come underneath that. And so there's this, there's this sacrificial service and there is this submission the scriptures talk about. But all across the Bible, you see this imagery of husband and wife between Jesus and his people. You go back into the Old Testament, though, what you're going to see is that God's people inevitably, whenever they looked at God, they said, God, you're good and all, but what I really want is this. What, I re- what my heart is really gravitating toward and captivated by and clinging to is this, this idol over here. So I'm going to turn aside and I'm going to continue to give lip service to God, but I'm going to go and worship at the altars of these idols. And the Bible talks about in the Old Testament how God's people played the harlot or they were a prostitute and they gave themselves, right? They lifted their skirts to all the gods of all the other nations and they gave themselves over to all the other gods of the other nations and they played the harlot. And in that harlotry, they had a master, but it wasn't the God of the scriptures. Right? The same is true in our day and time. Listen, if you're married, if you have a husband or if you have a wife, right? Whenever the will and desires of your husband or your wife, for those who have walked down the roads of infidelity and adultery, whenever the will of your husband or your wife, their desires, their needs come into conflict or collision or contradiction to the will and desires of your mistress, one of those is going to win every time. Only one of those is going to win every time. You can't please both of them. You can't yield to both of them. You can't serve both of them. And there will be times where your will or the will of the spouse and the will of the mistress will collide. They will contradict. and They will, uh, they will be at odds. And in those moments, you have to choose one or the other. You can't choose both. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Not that you can't have two bosses, but you can't be married and give yourself to two masters that you would yield obedience and submission to. 
That's what Jesus says. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say you shouldn't have two masters, does he? He doesn't give a moral imperative and say you shouldn't serve God and money. You shouldn't have two masters. What does he say? You cannot have two masters. It's not a moral imperative, but a logical impossibility that Jesus gives. He says you can't do it because there's going to be the collision of wills. There's going to be a contradiction of desires. God is calling you to this, and money is calling you to this. Material possessions is calling you to this. And those things do not intersect, but they run parallel to each other all the way down the tracks. Jesus says, either you will use money and serve God, or you will use God and serve money. You cannot have them both. Which one has your heart? Which one do you yield to? Which one do you give your obedience to, your submission to? Which, one, which altar do you bow at and worship? Jesus says it's only one. It's not both. It's not both, and it can never be both, he says. Second thing that Jesus says here, I think he gives us an indication of why money has such power and authority to rule over us like a master does. And here's why, particularly in our day and time. Hear this, hear this. In our day and time, right? The reason that money has such power and authority to rule and have mastery over us is because in it, our hearts find security and status. And without it, we are riddled with anxiety. In it, our hearts find security and status. And without it, our hearts are riddled with anxiety, shot through with anxiety. Look at what Jesus says further down in the text in verses 25 to 34 when he uses, he says, consider the birds of the air, consider the lilies of the field. And he says, do not, three separate times in that text from 25 to 34, he says, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Why on three separate occasions in 10 verses would Jesus say, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, unless he knows that your hearts are prone to anxiety in relationship to money and material possessions. Jesus says, if you yield to money, if you worship at the altar of money, your heart will be shot through. If you find your security, if you believe you're going to be okay because of what you have in the bank account or what car is sitting in your driveway or with the type of home that you live in, that that's going to make you secure in who you are and in the setting in which you live, or it's going to give you certain status symbols whenever people see your neighborhood and they drive by, or whenever you pull up the church in that new vehicle. Jesus says, if you're worshiping at the altar of money and yielding to money and it has mastery over you, you're going to be riddled with anxiety about money and material possessions. You're going to be anxious about attaining it, and you're going to be anxious about keeping it. It's going to create all kinds of anxiety in your life. And Jesus understands that. And that's where money gets the power to have mastery over our lives. It's because we believe that true security is going to come through it. And status that we long for in the eyes of our culture is going to be associated with it. And so we lay our lives down for it. And we lay our lives down for it. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be anxious. And I want you to be shot through with anxiety. I don't want you to be riddled with worry. 
about what you have or what you don't have, what you're trying to get and what you're trying to hang on to. He says, look at the birds. I love what he says when he says, look at the birds and look at the grass of the fields. Because Jesus says, we do not live in a, clo- in a closed system. What does that mean? That God didn't just spin all this out in, in, and create all these, these laws that govern creation and say, go have a ball. No, he says that God, we, we live in an open system where God is actively involved on a daily basis in sustaining what he has created. Look at what he says about the birds. He says, consider the birds of the field or the birds of the air. He says, they neither sow nor reap or gather into barns. And yet your who? Heavenly Father does what? He feeds them. He says to the worms, come out of the earth. And the bird snatches it up in its beak and swallows it down into its belly. He says to the bugs, come out of the forest. And the bird snatches it up in its beak and swallows it down into its belly. Your Heavenly Father feeds them. He didn't just set natural laws in motion and say, go have a good time. He continues by his grace to sustain everything that he's created and provide for it. Even those birds that fly around our heads. Your heavenly father feeds them. He has providential care for all of his creatures. For all of his creatures. Sovereignly providing for them. Lovingly providing for them. Showing his goodness and his provision for them every single day. Look at the grass of the field, Jesus says. Your heavenly father, they don't sew. They don't have sewing kits, right? They don't sit there and stitch and put all this clothes together. But he says, your heavenly father does what? He clothes them. He clothes them in an array of splendor that Solomon, the richest man in antiquity, could not even imagine. Every designer label. He says, look at the flowers and the beauty with which God clothes them. That God is, it's an open system. God is continuing to intervene. God is continuing to sustain. God is continuing to act, to provide for all of his creatures, providentially care for them. And then he says, God cares for those birds. And if God cares for those flowers, how much more so for the pinnacle of his creation, those who are formed and fashioned in his image, how much more so would he care for you? You see what Jesus is doing? saying your hearts are prone to be riddled with anxiety and I want you to be free from it. And I want it to have mastery over you. I want to have money to have mastery over you. I want you to have mastery over it. But our hearts are so prone to look at it and go, I'm secure when I have it and be riddled with anxiety without it because we're not looking heavenward and going, our Father is actively involved in an open system whereby he's providentially caring for even even the mosquitoes. I don't know why, but even the mosquitoes, even the horse flies, he's providentially caring for them. Why? I don't know, but he's providentially caring for you. And I want you to be free from all that anxiety. How do you know if money has mastery over you? One of the ways you know is because your heart's riddled with anxiety, but I want you to consider several other indicators as well. How do you know if money has mastery over you? And the primary way that you can see this is you can measure it by your giving to ministry and charity. Ministry and charity. 
both to gospel initiatives and gospel ministry through local churches and through missionaries and sending organizations and then through charity to the poor, to those who are without, to those who perhaps you might look at them and go, why can't they just go get a job instead of standing on the street corner with a sign saying, give me some change so I can go buy a burger. Jesus says, I think what we, when we look at this, one of the ways to measure whether or not our hearts are so under the mastery of money is by you measure it by your giving to ministry and charity. There's several ways this is going to flesh out for us. And one of those ways is this. One of the ways you know that your heart is under the mastery of money is if, is if you give to ministry and charity and only in ways that will benefit you. Only in ways that will give you a return. In Luke chapter 14, we find this story of Jesus dining in the house of a Pharisee. This great banquet that's been thrown And as a part of that story, as it unfolds, Jesus has a conversation with the man who has thrown the banquet. And this is what he says to him. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says. See, in Jesus' day and time, whenever you wanted to get things done in a community, you had benefactors and favorites. So you had these people who had great wealth and they had great influence and they had great position and standing in society. And you, had, you would attach yourself if, to a benefactor who could help provide for you, who could help care for you, who could help you get things done. And so the benefactor had a network of favorites. And one of the ways they got things done was because they provided favors to their network of favorites. So their favorites would then owe them a favor. So there was this network of political jockeying and social standing that took place in Jesus' day. And the way you went about broadening your network of favorites if you were a benefactor and the way you came under a benefactor's care is if you would go to these great feasts that they would throw, these great banquets they would have in people's homes. And they would have great feasts and they would prepare all the food and they would have a big party where everyone was kind of networking with each other, kind of like a conference that you go to today for your vocation. Everybody's networking with each other about, hey, what are you doing over here? Hey, what are you doing over here? Hey, we're doing this over here. It's really working well. You should try this. right? And so you got all this networking going on at these great feasts or these great banquets. And the only people who got invited to those things were people who could repay the one who had invited them. And so essentially, you had people who were dumping all kinds of money into these great banquets and feasts because they knew that there was going to be a return on their investment that was going to benefit them directly. And one of the ways that you know that your heart is living under the mastery of money is if you only give to ministry and charity when you see that it will directly benefit you. Another way that you know, another way that you know is, is, is because, or is if, is if the designation or the distinction between luxuries and necessities has gotten flipped upside down in your life between luxuries and necessities. And one indication of the fact that that's gotten flipped upside down and reversed in your life is that God, ministry, and charity only get your leftovers, not your first fruits. They only get your leftovers. 
In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, Jesus is sitting outside uh, the temple and he's watching. He's kind of people watching there with his disciples. Right? And he sees people coming by and dropping offerings in the offering boxes there in the temple. And in verse 41, it says he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And then in verse 42, it says, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance or out of their excess. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. See, most of us, most of us, when we think about our giving to ministry and charity, we think of it this way. We think, okay, here are my, all my needs. And so I, I got to have this kind of house and I got to have this kind of vehicle and I got to wear these kinds of clothes and I got to eat at these kinds of restaurants because they're going to give me all this status in the culture and society in which I live. And whatever is left over, then I'll be able to give away to the poor who are in need and maybe a little bit to my local church or to this missionary that I'm supporting over on the field. But what it seems, and based on Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 12, we need to switch that. We need to switch that. We need to say, listen, my necessities is giving to ministry and charity. Luxuries is the money that I have to spend on myself. Most of us consider ministry and charity, charitable contributions, as luxuries. Yes, we have excess. Yes, we have abundance. So now we can give that away. But Jesus says, Jesus says, we need to switch that. And we need to think about the necessities being the giving to ministry and charity and the luxuries, money that we have to spend now on vacations that we might want to take, or money that we can spend on a car that we would like to buy, or money that we want to spend on a house that we would like to build or purchase. Jesus says you've got to switch that. You've got to redefine what's a necessity. You've got to redefine what is a luxury for your life. And if we did, just imagine for a moment, what if a church were to redefine luxuries and necessities? My giving to ministry and charity is at the top, the first fruit coming out. And then my spending on myself, what would that look like? It would look like a radical unleashing of resources for gospel initiatives and caring for the least of these. If we stop giving out of our excess and our abundance. And I have a feeling that if we walk by the treasury in Jesus' day, that most of us in this room, he would say, yeah, they put it in a lot. But not as much as her. Another way that you know that money has a mastery over your heart and that you're living in bondage to it is if it's always the Lord's calf that dies. There's a, Brit- a farmer in Great Britain years ago discovered one of his cows was pregnant. It's a very appropriate illustration, living on a ran- yeah, church on a ranch. And discovered one of his cows was pregnant. Okay, And so as they care for the cow and they give it prenatal care and they provide for it and feed it and everything, the cow comes to term to deliver. And when the cow delivers to the farmer's shock and surprise, there are two calves instead of one. 
Now, the old farmer had all the livestock that he needed to provide for his family and take care of himself. And so he had determined whenever the cow was pregnant that he was going to sell the calf, make a small profit off of it. So when he saw that he had two calves, twin calves, now he said, hey, in a moment of great charity, he comes in and talks to his wife and says, listen, honey, I know that we're going to sell the calf and make a profit, but here's what I want to do. We're going to sell both of these calves, make a profit off of them. I want to give half of the proceeds to the Lord. We're Christians. We go to the church. We're going to give to the church. We're going to give to ministry. Half of the proceeds that we make off of selling these two calves. And his wife was like, honey, that's, that's great. It's very generous of you. So a few weeks go by. He continues to care for the calves as they grow. Well, one morning he walks out into the stall, finds out that one of the calves is dead. So he comes inside, his head kind of hanging low, his eyes down toward the ground. His wife says, what's wrong, honey? And he stops and he sighs for a moment. And he looks up and he says, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> the Lord's calf died. And she says, I don't remember you designating one to be to the Lord and one to be to us. He said, oh, no, 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 from the time they were born. I said, that's the Lord's calf right there. That's him, right? See, the point of the story is it's always the Lord's calf that dies. It's always the Lord's calf that dies when our hearts are being mastered by money. It's always Right, when you get in a pinch and you overextend yourself at Christmas, like we all, almost all of us do, you overextend yourself on credit cards, you overextend yourself on a home purchase, you overextend yourself whenever you bought that new vehicle, you overextend yourself in all these kinds of ways and taking on all these kinds of debt. When you overextend yourself, it's always the Lord's calf that dies. Right, whenever things get tight in the budget, you don't go, well, we need to stop eating at these restaurants. So we can continue to give to ministry and charity. You don't say we need to sell this vehicle. We need to cancel cable. We need to look at our gym memberships and pull those back. We need to, we need to, it's all, no, it's always, well, I can just pull back my giving at the church. Or I can stop supporting that missionary. Or I can stop giving to those orphanages. Or I can stop giving, channeling money outside of me so I can have more to spend on myself. It's always the Lord's calf that dies whenever your heart is mastered by money. What is ruling your heart? What has mastery over you? See, if we got to a place where the Lord's calf continued to live and we begin to cut back and say, I don't need to shop at those stores any longer. I don't need to buy those clothes any longer. I don't need to eat at those restaurants any longer because things have gotten tight, but I'm going to continue to channel resources and channel resources outside of me. It's going to hurt. It's going to cost me something. We're not going to be giving out of excess any longer, not out of abundance. But as Jesus says about that widow, he's going to put in everything that she has. Why? Because I'm giving to the point that now it begins to hurt for me. I begin to make sacrifices. I begin to draw lines. And I begin to say no to myself so I can say yes to giving to ministry and giving to charity, to giving to gospel initiatives. I can begin to say no to storing up for myself treasures on earth that Jesus talks about in verses 19, 20, and 21. And I can begin to say yes to storing up treasures in heaven. See, if money has mastery over you, you will give to those things that benefit you. You will give out of your excess and leftovers. And it will always be the Lord's calf that dies.
But if we could come to a place where we're no longer mastered by money, but mastered by Jesus, he's the king that's ruling and reigning over our heart. We're living under his sovereign and saving rule. Then there would be all kinds of money that would be freed up to invest freely and sacrificially. We would give freely without compulsion, and we would give sacrificially to the point where we begin to bleed a little bit, where we begin to hurt a little bit. And we would begin to invest in treasures in heaven. The things that are on God's heart would be where our resources are being directed, where our money is being channeled, where our time and energy, where our treasure is going, the things that are burdening God's heart. And so we would be burdened about churches being planted. We'd be burdened about missionaries being sent. We'd be burdened about the poor being cared for. We'd be burdened about orphans being nurtured. We'd be burdened about mercy ministries. We'd be burdened about gospel ministries, taking the good news to the places of the earth that are the least reached, perhaps even pockets of our own community. We'd be burdened by the things that are on God's heart. When God is our master, when we're under his mastery, then the things that burden him begin to burden us and our resources and time and energy begin to be channeled in that direction. And you see people get set free. You see the, alt, the, the trajectory of their lives begin to be altered because you've been willing to lay down yours. In World War II, there was a man by the name of Oskar Schindler, and he was a German uh, national who owned several factories in which he employed lots of Jewish workers. And Schindler began to pay off the Nazis in order to be able to protect his workers because he was looking for the bottom, out for the bottom line, right? All your workers get killed. You can't continue to produce munitions, right? And so he's paying off the Nazis in order to protect his own investment there, right? He's giving, he's bribing these officials, buying stuff off the black market to provide for his workers. But over the course of time, as he continues to give towards them, as he continues to give towards them, as he continues to bribe officials, as he continues to make purchases off the black market, he begins to realize that he's not only protecting his business investment, but he's protecting image bearers of God. Men and women, human beings. And his heart begins to break for the atrocities that are taking place. And so he begins to leverage everything that he has toward providing for those Jewish workers in his factories. And the war comes to an end. And in the movie that was produced back in 1993, there's an incredibly gripping scene as the war comes to an end and he realizes that he's wasted so much money.
could have gotten off. I don't know if I just... I could have gotten off. Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. If I'd made more money... <laughs> I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I just... There will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. Oh, good. What about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. And more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. It's an incredibly gripping scene where he comes to the end of the war, the warfare that had been showering down around them, and he realizes... And, and, and in that moment, he said, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. You have no idea. I wasted it. I could have saved more lives. This car worth 10 lives. This pen, at least one, it's made out of gold. I threw away so much. And my hope is that we as a church would stand before Jesus one day, and that we would not grieve with the same regret. But that we would be a radically generous people whose resources are freed up for the sake of gospel initiatives, to care for the poor, to care for the widow, to care for the orphan, and to see churches planted that would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Ten more people, one more person, there would be things that we intentionally neglect and say no to so that we could say yes to God. There would be treasures on earth that we would intentionally say no to so that we could say yes to the things that are on God's heart. What are you intentionally saying no to? Where are you intentionally denying? Where are you intentionally drawing a line right now saying no so that you can say yes. How will we become those kinds of people? How will we become those kinds of people? It's the last thing I'll share with you, and then we're going to sing together and take the Lord's table. How will we become those kinds of people? Here's how. 
Jesus says that what you are looking at is what is going to lead you to who you will become. What you are looking at is going to lead you. Where your eyes are fixed is where you're going to be headed and moving. What your gaze is set upon is what's going to shape and determine the trajectory of your life. It has a navigational effect in your life where your eyes are. Look at what he says in the text in verses uh, 22 to 23. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus says, what you fix your gaze upon, what you set your eyes upon, what you stare down with intention will determine your direction and where, where you're headed and where you're going. It has a navigational effect. He doesn't say the eye is the window to the body, right? He says the eye is the lamp. In other words, what you're looking at either will illumine or will darken your soul. It will either illumine and bring light to your soul or it will darken it and cause it to shrivel and it get all moldy and crusty in there. It says one of the two, the eye is healthy and it's gazing at things that are beautiful, the ultimate things, then you're going to be moving toward ultimate things. But if your eye is unhealthy and it's bad and you're gazing at non-ultimate things, then you're going to be moving toward non-ultimate things. There's a chain of values, and at the top of that chain of values is God and his mission and his purpose in the world. And if you're gazing at him, then you're going to be moving towards that. Your eyes are going to be fixed on him. You're going to be taking steps in that direction. It has a navigational effect in your life. Back in the old ancient times, before they had, well, not really ancient times, but before they had GPS units, okay, and before they even had radar or sonar, and before they had good charts, the men who traversed the seas, they would traverse the seas and they would navigate themselves by looking at a fixed point in the heavens. And most often that fixed point in the heavens was the North Star because it was fixed. It did not move. It did not shift. It did not turn. So they would look at the North Star and they would keep their gaze on the North Star and they knew that as long as they were moving in relationship to that North Star, that they were heading in the right direction, they were going to end up at the destination that they had determined to set out for. And there are North Stars in our lives. And if we will fix our gaze upon them, then we will move in that direction. Listen, if you spend all day gazing at truck parts and accessories on the internet, students, then your heart is going to move toward vehicles, right? Your resources are going to move toward whatever that next accessory you need for your vehicle might be or want for your vehicle might be. If you spend all day long watching home improvement shows on HDTV and DIY, right? Your heart, you fix your gaze on that all day, your heart's going to move in that direction and you're going to take steps down those roads. So when it comes to time to give to ministry and charity, you won't say, you won't say, I'm going to cut my home decorating budget. I'm going to cut my building budget. I'm going to cut my toy accessory budget for my car. You're going to say, I just pull a little bit out of ministry and charity giving because I got to do this over here because your eyes are gazing on what you find to be most beautiful. There are North stars, fixed points if we spend all of our day gazing at clothes or gazing at fine restaurants or vacations that we want to take, our hearts are going to move that direction. And we're going to figure out some way to make our resources match what our hearts desire. Wherever we have to cut from. 
And so the, the coin gets flipped and necessities turn into luxuries and luxuries turn into necessities. But if you will fix your gaze, if your eyes will be set upon Jesus, if you will look and stare down this God who though he was rich became poor so that in his poverty you might become rich. If you stare at that God who gave himself at the cross and denied himself all earthly pleasures. If you stare at that God and you look at the God who gave us his son, how will he not also give us all things in him? If you look at this God whose generosity is outpoured upon your life, in salvation, in his grace coming to you, coming top down, not bottom up. If you gaze at the ultimate, then your life will begin to reflect things that are ultimate. Your values begin to reflect things that are ultimate. If you gaze at this God in his gospel and you see, you see Jesus Christ generously laying his life down for you. Then all of a sudden money becomes just money not a master. And you can begin to use money and serve God and not use God to serve money. And that would be my prayer for you. My prayer for myself. Is that we would turn our eyes away from non-ultimate things and we would fix our gaze upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, as the author of Hebrews says, endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, that you would gaze at him day after day after day after day. And so your feet would begin to take steps toward what your heart is longing for because your eyes are fixed on him. And your resources would follow. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning. God, and we know that we cannot do this work on our own, but we need your spirit. We're in absolute dependence upon him to do a work in our hearts, to bring about the kind of change and transformation necessary that your spirit would melt away our defenses, that we would melt away our objections, would melt away all of the things that stand between us and a loving relationship with you through your son. I pray right now the Spirit would shine the flood beams of the light of Christ in our hearts and that our gaze would be fixed on Him so that we begin to take steps toward Him, intentionally saying no to some things so that we can intentionally say yes to the things that are on your heart so that our hearts would not be filled with a love of money, where our hearts would not be mastered and ruled over by material possessions that we would know that our security and our status are secured through Jesus and Jesus alone, that you as a loving Father care providentially for all your creation, including the pinnacle of that men and women, us. So Father, may, may we not use you to serve money. God, may you bring us to a place as we fix our gaze upon you and your son and your gospel that we would use money to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.